Hamlet Podcast, Episode 30. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanretty. Last time, we ended on the brink of a soliloquy, as Macbeth has dismissed everyone until dinner time, including Lady Macbeth. In all this, there's a slight feeling that he's up to something that he wants nobody to know about. And indeed, when the stage is cleared, he has a question for the one hovering attendant. Sirrah, a word with you. Attend those men our pleasure. Sirrah is a word used by a high-status person to address someone who is considered beneath them. Macbeth is the king now, so everyone is beneath him. There's no particular malice in this address, but it's helpful to know whenever you next hear a Shakespeare character using it. He's asking if those men attend his pleasure. Evidently, he has sent for them, whoever they are, and he wonders if they're here yet. This is a pretty good way of piquing our interest, since we in the audience have no idea who they are. The attendant replies that they are, my lord, without the palace gate. I always love hearing when words we now use differently crop up in Shakespeare. We still have the same meaning that he did for the word within, of course, but it's very old-fashioned now to use the word without to mean outside. And that's all that the attendant means. These men are outside or without the palace gate. So Macbeth instructs, bring them before us. And he's left alone on stage. So now we get another soliloquy from him, and as we may have come to expect, it's introspective and philosophical, and a little bit paranoid. To be thus is nothing but to be safely thus. Our fears in Banquo stick deep, and in his royalty of nature reigns that which would be feared. Tis much he dares, and to that dauntless temper of his mind he hath a wisdom that doth guide his valour to act in safety. There is none but he whose being I do fear, and under him my genius is rebuked, as it is said Mark Antony's was by Caesar. He chid the sisters when first they put the name of king upon me, and bade them speak to him. Then, prophet-like, they hailed him father to a line of kings. Upon my head they placed a fruitless crown, and put a barren sceptre in my gripe, thence to be wrenched with an unlineal hand, no son of mine succeeding. If it be so, for Banquo's issue I have filed my mind, for them the gracious Duncan have I murdered, put rancours in the vessel of my peace only for them, and mine eternal jewel given to the common enemy of man to make them kings, the seeds of Banquo, kings. Rather than so, come fate into the list and champion me to the utterance. It feels like this speech all but seals Banquo's fate. As I mentioned last time, Banquo is the only other witness to those witches' prophecies. Worse yet, 
he too got a proclamation from the Weird Sisters, and one that has serious implications for Macbeth, as he's discussing here. But first of all, he seems to acknowledge that the crown is now his. He is now the king, but already this isn't enough. To be thus, by which he means king, is nothing if it isn't secure, if it isn't permanent even. To be thus is nothing but to be safely thus. As his mind scans the stage, or perhaps scans his to-do list, Macbeth thinks of Banquo. He is a concern. And with a typically precise choice of words, Shakespeare manages to imply that not only are Macbeth's fears deep and severe, but that these fears will probably lead to Banquo being attacked. Our fears in Banquo stick deep. Spoiler alert. Macbeth does have great respect for Banquo. He's a great guy, and they fought cheek by jowl in that grim battle that happened right before our part of the story began. But this goodness is a problem. Macbeth almost sounds like Lady Macbeth when she worried about what a good guy he was. Before he murdered the king, that is. But Banquo... In his royalty of nature reigns that which would be feared. Again, the language is extremely compressed here. Banquo himself is almost kingly in his nature, but this nature will apparently give birth to a line of kings, just as the witches predicted. And Macbeth can't help thinking about that. Not only that, Banquo is brave. Tis much he dares, and fearless, and not just that, He's also very measured and wise, and so the decisions and actions he takes are invariably the right ones. Tis much he dares, and to that dauntless temper of his mind he hath a wisdom that doth guide his valour to act in safety. So now Macbeth makes his most honest confession yet. There is none but he whose being I do fear. He is afraid of nobody except Banquo. Banquo is the only one Macbeth sees as a threat, perhaps because the witches planted this seed of hope for his descendants. And in Macbeth's head already he's feeling that if Banquo's line are going to become kings, it will be at his expense. He's haunted by this, and even having Banquo around is cramping his style, making him feel this doubt. He has quite an erudite description of the feeling. He says, Under him my genius is rebuked, as it is said Mark Antony's was by Caesar. Again, as king, Macbeth is technically under nobody, but Banquo's potential is enough to rattle his cage. The reference here to Mark Antony and Caesar is a good one. But this time, it isn't Julius Caesar that he means, but Octavian, who will go on to become Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor. Mark Antony was a great politician and soldier, but Octavian founded a whole new political system of empire in Rome, and he was the forebear of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. The major step that Octavian had to take in order for that to happen was to defeat Mark Antony and his powerful, influential queen in Egypt. 
Shakespeare really seems intrigued with this dynamic between the two men, because in Antony and Cleopatra, another hit from that banner year of 1606, he has a soothsayer warn Antony about this very problem. Antony has asked whether his fortunes will rise higher than Octavian's, and the soothsayer says no, it'll be the latter, and continues. Therefore, O Antony, stay not by his side. Thy demon, that's thy spirit which keeps thee, is noble, courageous, high, unmatchable, where Caesar's is not. But near him thy angel becomes a fear, as being o'erpowered. Therefore, make space enough between you. Demons, spirits, angels, or, as in our case, one's genius. There's a very clear sense of these ideas in the air and in Shakespeare's head. Of course, I would love to tell you, as in the correlation between Hamlet and Julius Caesar getting killed on the Capitol, that the same actors might have played Macbeth and Antony, or Banquo and Octavian. But alas, I do not know. I have no evidence for this. But it is fun to think about how such meta-theatrical memories might have entertained an audience, isn't it? Back to Macbeth and his fears. He's remembering how Banquo complained to the witches, interrupting their promise that Macbeth would be king and commenting that they weren't speaking to him. Their response, of course, was to proclaim that he'll be the father of a whole dynasty. Just like Octavian. He chid the sisters when first they put the name of king upon me and bade them speak to him. Then prophet-like they hailed him, father, to a line of kings. It's never satisfying when you get good news only to hear that your pal gets something even better. Or, as in this case, when your pal is told something that all but guarantees that your reign will have no lasting outcome. Now, we've already had Macbeth gleefully telling his wife that she should bring forth men-children only. But this is pretty much the only thing we've heard between them about any plans to have children. Sometimes lurid films, particularly that very unsatisfying one from 2015 with Marianne Cotillard as Lady M, sometimes these concoct extra sequences showing the Macbeths as having lost a child, or, in her case, having made a genuine pact to give up her potential motherhood in order for Macbeth to succeed. But there's really nothing in the text that we have that insists on this. All we have is the text we have. What we do have here is Macbeth already worrying if it was all for nothing. First of all, he's pondering all the trappings of kingship that he now possesses, the crown, the scepter, and by extension, the throne. He's gone from clothing to accessories, perhaps, but they're all barren. The witches have given him a crown with no succession, and a barren scepter. No children at all, he worries. Upon my head they placed a fruitless crown, and put a barren sceptre in my gripe. Gripe is something like grip or grasp. He has these symbols of kingship now, but they're starting to feel hollow because they have no future in them. Instead, they're going to be taken from him anyway, by someone to whom he isn't even related, he fears. From his head and hands they are, thence to be wrenched with an unlineal hand, no son of mine succeeding. 
the line of succession is important, again since this play would have been performed before King James, and so whatever the lineage or family tree that could trace the line from James back to Banquo, or at least to Fleance, it was worth mentioning here. Banquo is all these kingly things, and Macbeth is a murderer, and he will not be succeeded. The crown will go to someone else's line, into what is, therefore, an unlineal hand. What follows from Macbeth isn't quite guilt so much as despair. It feels like he's done this ghastly thing, not for his own good, but for Banquo's good, for him and particularly for his children and his descendants. He's realising that for them he has defiled his mind. Shakespeare says filed, but it has the same meaning of pollution and destruction. For them he has killed Duncan. For them he has destroyed his peace of mind and given his soul to the devil. All to make them kings. If to be so, for Banquo's issue have I filed my mind. For them the gracious Duncan have I murdered, put rancours in the vessel of my peace only for them, and mine eternal jewel given to the common enemy of man to make them kings, the seed of Banquo kings. There's a good deal of religious imagery in here too, particularly this talk of the vessel of Macbeth's peace. It's an elegant way to describe his head, perhaps. He's put rancours or turmoils or traumas even into his head by committing this murder, and thus he will know no more peace. But there's also an echo of the religious vessel, the chalice. Earlier he mentioned putting a poisoned chalice to his own lips, and now he has a vessel full of rancours. His eternal jewel is his soul, something more precious than anything, and also handed over to the devil, the common enemy of man, by reason of having killed his kinsman, guest and king, Duncan. And all of this to make them kings, the seed, or in some versions of the text, seeds of Banquo kings. The latter plays in nicely to this constant flattery of King James, since by extension, or fantasy, he is one of those seeds, and he's now King of Scotland and England. A curious side note is worth mentioning here. In the real history of Scotland, rather than Shakespeare's historical fantasy drama, Macbeth was actually succeeded by his stepson, Lulach. The historical Lady Macbeth had a son from a previous marriage, and he became king after Macbeth died in battle. He didn't reign for long, but he does deserve a little mention since this play hammers home so aggressively that the Macbeths have no children and that it's Banquo's family that will be kings. In fairness, Shakespeare isn't totally wrong. Lulloch was not Macbeth's child, and so yes, technically, no son of mine succeeding still holds true. But what is Macbeth going to do? He can't sit and fret over what Banquo knows or thinks or is going to do. Since chance would have him king, chance crowned him. So perhaps there's hope yet. Rather than all these baby Banquos getting to take his crown, he calls on fate to come into the arena. Rather than so, come fate into the list and champion me to the utterance. As happens at the beginning of Richard II, 
some political disputes could be resolved by man-to-man single combat. Macbeth seems here to be hoping for something similar. The list is this kind of arena in which such fights could happen. I can't quite decide whether he's calling on fate to fight for him, or perhaps he's hoping to challenge fate itself, since that's what he'll need to conquer. Everything else the witches said has come true, so perhaps he'll need to fight to the death to change the course of his destiny. This is the first recorded use of the word champion as a verb, so perhaps it's a bit fluid. The end of the same line is even more arcane, but thanks to one of the earliest French-to-English dictionaries, we might have an explanation for it. A great man called Randall Cotgrave felt that there was enough linguistic traffic between English and French in the early 17th century that he compiled his dictionary, and in it there's a French phrase, à l'outrance. This is a term from duel fighting and the like, and is a description for when someone is fighting to the death rather than just for honour or for a prize in a competition. So it fits right in here with Macbeth's imagery of fighting and combat in the hope of changing his fate. It's not a huge leap to imagine Shakespeare transliterating outrance, outrance, to utterance. At the end of that line, as Macbeth is imagining fighting fate or perhaps poor Banquo to the death, someone enters and interrupts his train of thought. So he shouts, who's there? There's no verbal answer, but the stage directions rather brilliantly tell us that the attendant re-enters with two murderers. On stage, surely we shouldn't know in advance that they are murderers. They'd be very bad at their jobs if their appearance announced what they do so very openly, since surely any potential victim might see them coming. So, here's the divergence between the experience of seeing and reading a play. The attendant has brought in two contractors, let's say, and the next portion of the scene will perhaps reveal what work Macbeth wants them to do. First of all, he dismisses the attendant, saying, Now go to the door and stay there till we call. Presumably, he wants the room watched, so that nobody will overhear whatever he's about to arrange. But as for what that is, we'd probably better wait until next week to find out. But we know from the page that these two are murderers, so it's unlikely that they are here to redecorate the castle here at Forres. Thank you, as always, for your company. And if you're so inclined, please do subscribe and even leave a review of the podcast on your podcast app. I confess I have no idea how algorithms work in mathematics or in digital media, but it does apparently help get the podcast to show up as a recommendation for other people. So in order to reach more people and let more of them join us on this blood-curdling journey through the play, apparently I need your help to boost this genius or demon or spirit algorithm. Frankly, I've seldom done it for any of the podcasts that I listen to myself, so there's no pressure for me to do so. But if you know how these things work and you can help, I'd be very grateful indeed. Next time, we'll find out what the plan is for this pair of murderers, and I hope you'll join me then.